And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, five, or five. Welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast, where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list, and then we reveal our picks on air. I'm your host, ex-video store clerk, wannabe screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleberg, and tonight my guest is Jen Howell, co-host of the Every Rom-Com Podcast. The romantic comedy has traditionally been one of my least favorite genres. As a kid growing up, I was never really exposed to them because nobody in my family was into them. In fact, I'd guess that I probably didn't see a traditional rom-com until I was out of high school and forced to watch them while on dates, so my history with these kinds of films is going to be much less, probably, than many listeners. That being said, when a romantic comedy hits for me, it's a big deal. It's memorable, and I hope that shows with some of the picks on my list. Jen Howell, however, is the expert on rom-coms, and I thought she showed that with her picks. When you get done listening to this show, I highly recommend checking out every rom-com It's well-produced, the content is sharp, and I think the fact that I've been listening to it a lot and really enjoying it as somebody who has shied away from that genre in the past should tell you something about the quality, so go check that out. Before we get to that, I have some listener picks from last week. I got a few reviews I wanted to go through, but I did want to take a second and just say that I'm really sad about Ray Liotta passing away. This happened, obviously, since the last show. He was a tremendous actor, and he always just had this really great presence on screen, no matter how big or small the role. So uh, real quick, I just want to rattle off my top five Ray Liotta performances. At number five, his perfectly unhinged ex-con character of Ray Sinclair in 1986 is something wild. At number four, I'd put his role as Shoeless Joe Jackson in the 1989 baseball classic Field of Dreams. At number three, his role as the man who inspired a revolution on a futuristic prison island, J.T. Robbins, in 1994's Extremely Underrated No Escape. At number two, his role as Henry Oak in the heartbreaking, visceral Joe Carnahan film Narc. And at number one, of course, his role as Henry Hill in 1990's Goodfellas. Ray Liotta, you will be missed. Film historian and author Sam Deegan joined me on the last show to talk top five war films, and there were a ton of great films that we didn't talk about on the show. Across social media, uh, one of my best friends, Sean Aguilar and Sven Rufus, both said Grave of the Fireflies. Sven adds, I maintain it is a war film even without the war. Uh, Jamie Uller said The Thin Red Line, Apocalypse Now, A Time to Love and A Time to Die and Army of Shadows. Maddie Mack emailed me and said Cross of Iron, the Sam Peckinpah film, which I think was his last, if not one of his last. Uh, he also said The Big Red One by Sam Fuller and A Midnight Clear by Keith Gordon, which I have not heard of. So I got to see what that one's all about. And over on Cinematics on Facebook, Matt Stillman said 1917, Paths of Glory and All Quiet on the Western Front. Ryan Smith added Fury, the uh, tank movie. Tank the movie. Uh, and then Das Boot. Joseph Bridges added Master and Commander, which uh, was the Napoleonic Wars, Under the Shadow. Uh, Little Dieter Needs to Fly, which I have not heard of, and Bloody Sunday. Stephen Holmes said De Palma's Casualties of War, Dead Presidents, which I considered. First Blood Part Two, Tropic Thunder. Peter Beta said uh, Full Metal Jacket and Starship Troopers. I almost went there. Life is Beautiful, another good one. Lencho Rubio said Battle of Los Angeles, which I have not seen, but uh, we'll add that to the list. David Wangberg said A Hidden Life. 
Eric Holmes, Dog Soldiers, uh, getting a 4K release pretty soon. Enemy Mine, that's a great one, and Land of Mine. Nathan Day added Saving Private Ryan, Letters from Iwo Jima, and A Very Long Engagement by Jean-Pierre Junet. And uh, Eric Holmes chimed back in and said One Shot, the Scott Adkins movie. So a lot of, a lot of, a lot of recommendations this week. Um, I got, I got some more movies to check out. In terms of what I've been watching since I last talked to you, um, today I want to share a Snatchers double feature, starting with 1993's Body Snatchers, one of many adaptations of Jack Finney's story, The Body Snatchers, from the 1950s, 1955. There's something in the air, and it feels like fear. There's something in the night, and it seems like terror. There's someone in your bed, and it looks like you. Life will be simpler now. The only thing missing will be you. Mommy! What's the matter? There's mommy. She's right there. What happened? No, she's not my mommy. I'm seeing people at the infirmary exhibiting paranoia. People afraid to sleep. Get in bed. Afraid of family members. Let it go! People afraid of themselves. We gotta go right now! Adaptations of this book always kind of morph into interesting time capsules of modern issues going on when the adaptation was made. The basic premise, which I'm sure everybody is aware of at this point, is that aliens somehow start taking over human bodies in an effort to take over the planet. And in this 1993 version, Abel Ferrara's first and only, I believe, big budget flick, the setting is a military base that is overrun by body snatchers. Our main characters are a family of four who have just moved to the military base for a bit so that the father can conduct a chemical safety study for the EPA. The family unit has some seams that we learn about early on. The 17-year-old daughter, Marty, has contempt for her father because he remarried after her mother died 10 years prior. Because of this, she resents her stepmom, but does have a a special bond with her 6-year-old brother. She's a tad rebellious, but nothing that feels salacious or out of control. While at the base, she meets a few new friends, the daughter of the base general named Jen, and a young helicopter pilot named Tim. Early on, we understand that there are some things going on at the base, but really don't see anything until about 35 minutes in. And it's worth the wait. We see a head disintegrate into a pillow, the human a mere husk, as the life force has been transferred to the alien taking their place. Shortly after this point, things get crazy, but it does feel pretty tame still for an Abel Ferrara picture. Unfortunately, it doesn't come close to the 1978 classic, and in my opinion, it comes down to two big reasons. First, the relationships Marty makes on the base don't feel solidified. For example, I think we're supposed to believe that Marty and Jen are good friends at the end of the film, but we'd really only seen them hang out twice. The romantic relationship between Marty and Tim, aka the telegraphed last man standing with an obvious way off the base, feels extremely undercooked. I have no reason to believe that Tim would have risked his hide to save this girl during the climax of the film instead of just leaving the base and going to get backup. Despite the unconvincing relationships and knowing where the story was probably heading, I enjoyed the first two-thirds of the film, and then we get to the ending, which felt rushed, which led to a suspicion that washed over me that the theme the filmmakers were going for just was not going to stick the landing. The overarching allegory here is that of individuality versus conforming, but aside from the frantic Forrest Whitaker freaking out about not wanting to become one of them, there's nothing about the importance of individuality going on with any of the characters. 
The film could have been saying something about the risks of blindly following orders while being part of the military, but if that's what they were going for, it just it didn't work for me. There's one fairly predictable, yet still shocking scene during the ending, but its impact is severely undercut by some awful green screen work. We then cut to an epilogue set to narration that complements one that started the film, which was definitely inspired by Terminator 2's Sarah Connor. Both the opening and closing narrations feel like a product of studio notes based on their lack of faith in the audience, and ultimately end up being kind of silly. The last shot attempts to cause unease for exiting theater patrons, but really just kind of fell flat for me as we cut to a big, the end. I have other minor nitpicks about the movie, like how characters rank really dumb decisions. A special shout out to the dumb military dude who shows up in the bathroom at the beginning of the film to scare Marty, but for some reason apparently goes back to the base, or the inconsistencies in how and when aliens take over people's bodies. Some just wait until the subject is sleeping, some are brought to a bunker by force, there's all kinds of different ways, but I'm just going to stop here and say that this film, to me, was pretty disappointing. Uh, I'm in the minority here, it appears, because I think a lot of critics liked it at the time. I know Ebert liked it at the time. But in my opinion, if you want to see an adaptation based on the story, there are plenty of others you can and should check out and start with the 1978 version. So that was 1993's Body Snatchers. I'm going to be as vague as possible with this next review because I really feel like this is a gem just waiting to be discovered. It's a film that made its premiere at South by Southwest in 2019, and it's just called Snatchers. So how far along are you? A day. I've changed a lot this summer. My priorities are different. Felt so good. Did you pull out? I'm sure everything's fine. Triage, Haley. Priority one is keeping us quiet. Priority two is my general overall. How about we just slap you on the kitchen counter and aim you at the Vitamix? The film kicks off in reproductive science class, and this group of four girls are just ignoring the lesson, talking about a party that's happening that weekend at one of their houses. Our main character, Sarah, makes fun of another girl in class named Haley. She's the nerd. And we see her ex-boyfriend, Skylar, walk into class. They broke up before summer vacation because she wasn't ready for sex, and he spent the summer in Mexico studying abroad. In his opinion, the breakup was a good thing because over the summer, his priorities changed. And we find out pretty instantly that he only has one priority, sex. In an effort to win him back, Sarah goes to his house and they have sex, an act that comes with dire consequences. Because two days later, she wakes up and is apparently nine months pregnant. The rest of the film sees Sarah teaming up with Haley to workshop a solution to her growing problem because she doesn't want her friends or her mom to know what she's going through. This is a horror comedy, and the comedy side of this movie really worked for me. The main characters I thought had great chemistry together. I love that they played up how clueless they both were about the reproductive system. Both uh, Mary Neppy, who plays Sarah, and Gabriel Elise, who plays Haley, have great comedic chops and just kind of reminded me of a young Brie Larson and a young Maya Rudolph. Some of the solutions they land on are hilariously stupid, but are also things I might have thought about at 17 years old. And then uh, most of the side characters 
Although they are one note caricatures, they're funny enough that I just didn't care. The character of Skyler was a standout. He plays this high school sex craze fuckboy so well. And when we get to see the video that he made for his Spanish class, it's just top tier douchebaggery that is really, really funny. It's also part extremely goofy, super gory creature feature. The effects looked like they were done practically, and the filmmakers were able to accomplish a lot with what I assume was a pretty low budget. There are a couple massacres in this film, and it does not pull back on the gore. There's tons of blood, tons of guts. The movie does feel like it has real stakes. And, uh, you know, even the, even the opening credits sequence is awesome. The sound design feels kind of like a horror parody with, you know, loud thumps and score crescendos at all the predictable moments. But because of its intended vibe, you probably won't be rolling your eyes, but rather leaning further into the fun. Premarital sex and budding womanhood are themes that have been tackled hundreds of times on the silver screen in basically every genre, and with plenty of incredibly different portrayals. A recent example would be the Pixar film Turning Red, which illustrates the changing body transformation its teen is going through by changing her into a giant fluffy panda. Snatchers ups the age range and the ante. Sarah's young mother in the film also has an arc that struck a chord with me because as a parent, you never want your child to make the same mistakes you did. While I don't feel that this film has earned a place in the genre cinema hall of fame, I certainly think that if you're into horror comedy films, you're going to have a really good time with this. It's, uh, I think it officially came out in 2020. It's called Snatchers. Jen Howell from Every Rom-Com is up next, but first, I want to talk about today's sponsor. One of the things I hate about shopping for clothes is having to go into an actual store. So now, I do most of my shopping online like a normal person. Unfortunately, many of the things I buy online don't fit me correctly. A little too short, a little too long, wrong material, whatever that might be. It's tough when you're tall in particular. Hell, even with my hats, seven and one fourth can often fit differently. So what do you do? Well, today's sponsor, Cusco, has it figured out with their all-new self-fitting jacket. Simply put the jacket on and press the self-adjust button on the front, and this jacket will do the rest. It's made of high-quality real leather in a bomber design and features two flat chest pockets for all the small things you might want closest to your nips. Head to Cusco today and use the promo code FORCE5, that's FORCE and the number 5, for a free Gray's Sports Almanac with the purchase of any self-fitting jacket so you can stay informed on sports history while you stay warm. Let's get back to the show and talk some ROMs and some comms. Welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast. My guest tonight is Jen Howell, co-host of the Every Rom-Com Podcast. Jen, how's it going tonight? Oh, it's going great. I'm really excited to be on the show. I love your list format. I've always loved making lists. So yeah, I'm psyched. I'm psyched too. I'm, I'm so happy to have you on. I recently discovered your show and I'm hooked now on romantic comedies, which is odd because it's not my favorite movie genre, but there are some great ones. Yeah. And we're going to talk about a bunch of those today. But before we get into the romantic comedies, is the romantic comedy your favorite genre? So it's kind of, it's one of my two favorite genres. And when I was starting the podcast, I initially was sort of torn between horror and rom-coms, which sounds weird. And I eventually chose rom-coms partly because I thought they would cause me less anxiety to be watching a lot of romantic <laughs> comedies than sure. it would be if I was watching horror movies all the time. So I've done those like Halloween things where you watch one every day and it's the horror movies and it's just like too much. So yeah, I love all kinds of movies. I'll watch pretty much literally everything. You mentioned horror. What are some of your favorite horror movies of all time? 
Well, I like a lot of the newer horror movies, actually. Um, I'm really a fan of Jordan Peele's work. I mm. might be the only person who likes Us better than Get Out. Um, Ooh, that's an uh, interesting take. Yeah, I just think it has, <laughs> there's so much to unpack with Us. There's just layers of symbolism and meaning. And I, every time I watch it, I get something new out of it. But I love both of those movies. I love Midsommar. Mm-hmm. I really love I really love also the Suspiria remake by Luca Guadagnino from 2018. I think it's one of the most underrated, underseen movies. Uh, it's I like the original Suspiria, but this like takes that premise and just develops it so much more. And there's such great performances in it too, especially Tilda Swinton. My goodness. So yeah, I like classic horror too, and I like slashers and all that. But I think there's just such exciting horror coming out these days. I really like the Suspiria remake too. Tilda Swinton Yay. plays like a bunch of different characters in there. And um, yeah, it was definitely an interesting take to take it from a rural dance place to in the into the city, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I like everything about it. And I did not realize that Tilda Swinton was playing other characters until after the movie, which was hilarious. Really, really great. Well, it's it's good that you picked romantic comedies because there are so many different horror movie podcasts and romantic comedies are kind of a a untouched niche area in podcasting actually there are a lot of so after i created my podcast i discovered there are a lot of other rom-com podcasts but uh, i think mine is a little different because a lot of the other rom-com podcasts are more commentary focused and i'm definitely like trying to do like a film geeks rom-com podcast so We'll definitely have like making of information as well, behind the scenes stuff, like film geek stuff, right? But we we also like our commentary. But there is actually a lot of work out there in the rom com field too. So yeah, I, I do I do like mine the best, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> well I do too. <laughs> so um, obviously you do some you review the movie, you talk about the movie, you talk about the cultural impact of the movie. Tell us a little bit more about your show. So yeah, well, like I said, I'm trying to do like a film geeks rom-com podcast. We have a tagline, like we're the podcast that has fun taking romantic comedies seriously. And it's so much about why I started it because I would be listening to film podcasts and I would feel like, you know, women sort of focused genres like chick flicks, if you will. I think they were often getting dismissed or kind of not even talked about on those podcasts. So it's kind of a mission of mine, I guess, to just like show people that there's a lot more going on in these movies, that even a silly rom-com might have something interesting to say about the culture at the time. You know what I mean? Sure. And also there are so many female creators involved in rom-coms. Like I inadvertently four of my top five today are written by women. I did not plan it that way. It just sort of accidentally happened that way. And Mm -hmm. I just, I think it's a great genre for women's character, like women to be the main character in the movie and also for women's voices to be heard in movies. So yeah, it's very important to me. I was raised feminist. So yeah, but we also have a lot of fun. We we do some goofy stuff on the show. It's just a really well produced, really well put together podcast. And you'll learn a lot about the like the behind the scenes stuff and how things came to be in those movies. Um, just really good stuff. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, definitely. How would you describe your criteria for a romantic comedy? Because it is kind of like a squishy... Uh-huh. Uh, definition, I guess. Yeah, well, I'm trying to uh, hew a lot closer to the definition with the list today because on our podcast, um, we are covering some things that aren't technically romantic comedies too. But every movie we cover on the show, it has to at least have romance and it has to have 
you know, some humor involved as well, or it has to like sort of explore an angle of the rom-com genre. Like we covered Twister, for example, which is not traditionally considered a rom-com, of course, (laughs) but if you really watch that movie, there is a romance that is central to that story that if you pulled it out, it wouldn't make a lot of, it wouldn't be a lot. You You would have forgotten about Twister already, put it that way. It would be like back there with deep impact and stuff like that, that you forgot about. Um, for me, I guess a rom-com, it basically just has to have romance at the center of the story in some way. It has to be the A or the B plot. And for a rom-com, it is better if there's comedy, but there's a surprising number of romantic comedies that don't, aren't very funny. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or if they're trying to be funny, it's maybe, you know, just sort of silly and unnecessary and it isn't needed. I think the comedy genre can also be thought of like in the traditional classical sense of like comedy and tragedy, where a comedy had a happy ending, perhaps ending in a marriage, whereas a tragedy, somebody, you know, basically died or was a victim of their own faults and weaknesses. So yeah, we, we cast a very wide net and I'm, I don't want to gatekeep what a rom-com is. I think it's much more productive to try to show people how there's an element of rom-com in all these other genres. There's some great rom-com horror movies out these days too. So I just, I welcome the spread of romantic comedy into these other genres and vice versa. Yeah, you do uh, cover a wide variety of films over there. For my list today, I kind of stuck to the more traditional sense as well. For me, uh, you know, I always try to limit myself somehow with the criteria because there's so many movies out there. So I was boiling it down to the romance being the main plot point versus a subplot. Um, yeah. And I'll just throw it out there. I, I hope it's not on your list because I don't want to step on any toes. <laughs> but um, one example might be Wayne's World, which I didn't put on my list because although it could be considered a romantic comedy because, you know, he's in love with somebody and that's part of the movie. It's not the main plot. It's it's like a offshoot of the main plot, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I also chose to exclude high school movies. So there are some oh. classic high school <laughs> romantic comedies that are not going to be on my list. So maybe you can help uh, scrape those up if <laughs> if I left them off my list. There, there might be something. There might be something in there. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, Jen, are you ready to get to this list? Yeah, I'm excited. You know what's going to happen? You know what's happening here right now? You know what's going to happen? No, 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 no. Top five romantic comedies. And you know what? I'm going to start us off here with the only one that I believe you've covered on your show that's on my list. At number five, I chose Chasing Amy. What a long face, Horace. I'm just having a little girl trouble. Pressing charges. I get that a lot. Holden McNeil was set in his ways, the way he worked, the way he lived, and the way he thought love should be. But then, she showed up. Let me guess, you like her. This girl loves me. There's something you should know. She got a boyfriend. Well, no. Then what's to know, my friend? And this girl's got a secret. That's going to drive him crazy. I like you, Hogan. 
I'd really like us to be friends. What I tell you, she just needs the right guy. What's up? If you come pick me up, I'll be your best friend. Now, the only thing standing in Holden's way is the truth. I can't take this. Can't take what? I love you. Not in a friendly way. Yeah. You know what? I was so happy to I listened to this episode of yours and I was happy that you liked it. And yeah. it seemed like everybody on the show liked it. And that's kind of sometimes strange when you look online. There's a lot of haters on Chasing oh. Amy. This one is written and directed by Kevin Smith, stars Joey Lauren Adams, uh, Ben Affleck, Jason Lee and the other usual Kevin Smith people. It's about these two comic book creators named Holden and Banky. Everything's going fine for them. They have a great friendship, work as well. And then they meet Alyssa, a female comic book artist, and Holden falls in love. But his hopes are crushed when he finds out that she's a lesbian. Now, I said this on the Incinerator podcast recently, but a lot of people say that this is Kevin Smith's most mature movie. Hmm. And I, I kind of disagree with that. <laughs> I don't think it's... I, I, I don't really know that he's made a mature movie. Maybe Red State, but... Uh, this this movie's not mature in any sense of the word, but I do think that it's his best movie. You know, when you boil it down, it's a really interesting look at accepting your partner's past as just that, the past, and believing that your partner is in love with you now. Because Holden, who's played by Ben Affleck, a, a really whiny, goateed version of Ben Affleck, <laughs> by the way, he he has to deal with Alyssa's sexual history, which for him and for a lot of people is a huge hang-up. I, I just love this movie. It's got some really great characters. As despicable as he seems now, Banky, played by Jason Lee, is just... There's something about his delivery of lines that I really like. He's this jackass that's like... He always tries yeah. to be 21. He wants to play video games and just dick around with his friends his whole life. I love that character. Hooper X is another one that I know you're a fan of. Yeah, he's yeah. this uh, he's this other comic book artist who puts on this front when he's in front of crowds as this angry activist. And he works with other artists to drum up controversy when he's not really <laughs> that kind of person. Just really great, great scenes there. I love Banky as a character, too. Like, I wouldn't want to necessarily hang out with him, but there's such <laughs> an authenticity about that character. You know, I was a teenager in the 90s and... That's just a guy that I met. Yeah. All the characters in this movie are people that seem authentic to me that I met. And that's one of the things I love about Chasing Amy. I don't need a movie to smooth over the rough edges of life. I want to watch movies that reflect reality to me. And I feel like Chasing Amy does such a great job of having characters who, you know, they don't always say the right things, but they're real people, you know, and they're dealing with real issues of romance and love. Yeah, I was gonna, I was going to say this. Like, if you... If you just see Chasing Amy now for the first time, you're probably going to get offended by a lot of things. But I'm like you. I grew up in the 90s. And these were characters of people that we knew. <laughs> and it's just how yeah. it's a, a lot of how people talked back then. There's also really great acting in this movie. I think that the performance specifically by Jason Lee is really fantastic. There's an exchange that comes to mind between Jason Lee's character and Ben Affleck's where they're arguing about why he likes Alyssa Jones and it happens in their apartment. It's all done in really one take and it just feels so raw. Jason Lee is mm. so good in that scene as they're arguing back and forth. 
What? What is it about this girl, man? You know you have no shot at getting her into bed. Why do you bother wasting time with her? Because you're holding fucking McNeil. Most persistent traveler on the road, that's not the path of least resistance. Everything's gotta be a fucking challenge for you. And this little relationship with that bitch is a prime example of your fucking condition. Well, I don't need a magic eight ball to look into your future. You wanna forecast here? Will Holden ever fuck Alyssa? Oh, what a shock, not fucking likely. This relationship is affecting you, our work, and our friendship. And the time's gonna come when I throw down the gauntlet and say it's me or her, then what are you gonna I say? I think you should let this one go. No, okay? what would you say? Would you trash 20 years of fucking friendship because you've got some idiotic notion that this chick would even let you sniff her panties, let alone fuck her? Look, fucking asshole, I'm telling you, okay? Let it go! What the fuck, man? What the fuck makes this bitch all that important? Cause I'm fucking in love with her, man, okay? I would probably have this higher up on my list if I didn't hate the ending so much. Um, <laughs> I, that's the one thing I really dislike about this movie, but the characters and the comedic elements really work for me well enough to have this on my list at number five, but I really just dislike the ending for some reason. It's a really strange ending. I mean, <laughs> I think you're talking about the the part right before the very end, or are you talking about the yes. very end? No, no, no. Yeah. I'm talking okay. about the conversation between the three of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely wild. Um yeah, but I love Chasing Amy too. Um it might be on a top 20 if I were making a top 20 rom-coms just because of its sort of uniqueness and Ke I I'm a Kevin Smith fan. I love his sense of dialogue so much. So, yeah, I support it. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. Uh all right, number 5 for you, Jen Howell. Okay, so my number 5 um I kind of struggled with the fifth position. And I think a lot of people who come on your show say the same thing because there's so yep. many possible options. And I think it's less of a rom-com than most of the other movies I chose, but it's been so influential on the rom-com genre. So I'm choosing 1987's Dirty Dancing. It's her summer vacation and his summer job. No funny business, no conversations. I keep your hands off. Watch me now. Restaurant what Pictures presents Dirty Dancing. Starring Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey. Dirty Dancing. Get ready for the time of your life. Soundtrack available on RCA Records and Cassettes rated PG-13. Starts Friday, August 21st at a theater near you. Which I think, to me, Dirty Dancing is one of the most perfect films that has ever been made. Um, from the script to the direction um, by Emil Ardolino, who had worked with dance movies before to the cast with Jennifer Grey and Patrick Swayze. Um, but the script is the foundation of the whole thing for me. It's by Eleanor Bergstein and it's telling a story that's authentic to her. Like she grew up going to resorts in the Catskills and she grew up dancing the exact story in dirty dancing didn't happen to her, but it's such a heartfelt film. And I think a script is so important to a rom-com in general. So for the, maybe there probably are people who haven't seen dirty dancing, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, the younger, younger crowd probably hasn't. Yeah, for so for the people who haven't seen Dirty Dancing, the basic story is that Frances Baby Hausman is going with her family to a Catskills resorts in the early 1960s. And she becomes involved with the workers there as as friends. And then she to help them out, she agrees to learn how to perform a dance with dance instructor Johnny Castle. And, you know, sparks and attraction gradually begin to fly between them. And it's such a 
it's such a basic story. Like it's been replicated in a lot of other rom-coms that have a dance angle, but it's never been done as well to my mind. The only dance rom-com that even comes close for me is Strictly Ballroom, which is Baz Luhrmann's first film. Hmm. And yeah, this movie's just, it's, it's a delicious movie. It's like the ultimate summer fantasy. You have dancing, you have swimming, you have falling in love with a hot guy at this beautiful resort. But beyond that, like what's very meaningful to me about this movie is Jennifer Grey's character, Baby, is a very assertive, independent woman, like young woman. You didn't see a lot of that in the 80s. You didn't see a lot of women characters who were not only the protagonist, but who were really driving the action of the movie, making the decisions. And she also is the one who seduces Johnny, played by Patrick Swayze, which I think is very important because... I've always been a very assertive woman romantically, but you don't see a lot of that portrayed in film, portrayed in our culture. It's still not as acceptable as it could be. And she was she was a role model to me. Not only was she assertive in that way, but she had political ideals in the movie. And that, that was me. So I think rom-coms are a very personal genre, um, which I probably should have said before I started the whole list. But I think what people choose is going to reflect a lot of times their experiences, what they want out of love, you know, and and who they see themselves as. And so for me, Dirty Dancing sort of is that piece. But I also think it has just a perfect script, great direction, amazing acting. And the dancing is so fun. You just want to I've, I've rewatched this movie so many times I can't count. I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if I've seen it a 100 times. It was the sleepover movie when I was a kid. And then it's like a comfort movie, you know. Yeah, I, I will echo your sentiments about, especially the direction. The There's a lot of long takes in here, and it's not choppy, and it's not edited to hell, which takes yeah. a lot of skill, especially in a dance movie, meaning that your lead actors had to be a part of those dance scenes, and you can tell they're doing the work. It's It's amazing. Yeah, Patrick Swayze was a great discovery in this case because he had been trained as a dancer. And again, Emil Ardolino had filmed dance uh, movies before. Uh, Kenny Ortega, the choreographer, had done a lot of work before. So they really worked hard. And Jennifer Grey, I think, was learning a lot as she went. But they all do a great job. Yeah, great score, too. Great score. Oh, yeah. And soundtrack. Yeah, it's just amazing. I mean, uh, songs that'll stick with you forever. (laughs) Um, And I should have mentioned, you you mentioned how strong of a a female character Jennifer Grey was. I didn't even mention the character of Alyssa Jones in Chasing Amy. I felt Mm -hmm. that she was kind of the same way as this strong female character who just kind of like did what she wanted to do and experimented and just lived versus caring what other people thought about her, which I thought was um, really neat about that movie. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Like, it's so important to me in rom-coms to have that strong female character. And I just like really quickly, I just want to mention too, like in terms of its cultural impact, like, like, you ever almost everybody knows the lines from this, like nobody puts baby in the corner. I carried a watermelon. The lift (laughs) is a legend the lift scene, the dance lift. I mean, the best scene in crazy, stupid love is just an homage to dirty dancing, in my opinion. Uh, Well, you mentioned how romantic comedy is really are very personal movies. And this next one really rings true for me. It is My Big Fat Greek Wedding ah. from 2002. Hi. Hi. Did you want to see some brochures? <gasps> Found them. Now on DVD and video. May I please date your daughter? No! It's the number one romantic comedy of all time. I just want to spend some time with you. 
If he thought winning her heart was a challenge, wait till he meets her family. Everyone, this is Ian. I've never seen my sister so happy. If you hurt her, I'll kill you and make it look like an accident. Why do you love me? Because I came alive when I met you. It's a zit. HBO Video presents My Big Fat Greek Wedding on DVD and video. We may be lambs in the kitchen, but we have tigers in the bedroom. Ew, please let that be the end of your speech. Only from HBO Video. I grew up in a very small family, and then I married into a very different family. So I, my wife is Hispanic, huge family, a lot of cultural traditions, a lot of hoops that people made me jump through to accept me. A lot of this movie rang true for me. Now in the movie, of course, it's Greek folks written and written by and starring Nia Vardalos, who just put together a an electric script. This was nominated for Best Original Screenplay at the Oscars, which you don't see a lot with romantic comedies. Mm-hmm. You don't see them getting honored at the Oscars very often. Uh, John Corbett plays her love interest in here. And it's it's really just about this young Greek woman who falls in love with a non-Greek and then struggles to get her family to accept him. And at the same time, she's coming to terms with her own identity. You probably remember back in 2002, I certainly do, this movie was spreading across the world like wildfire. Yes, yes, I remember very well. Yeah, it was one of those word of mouth gems that, you know, in the internet age today, it just spreads a lot faster. But then, I mean, this movie was in theaters for like nine months. It was insane. Mm -hmm. I think it still holds the record for the highest grossing romantic comedy of all time. Yeah, I think you're right. I was looking at those lists recently and depending on how you measure it, but I think even depending on how you measure it, it's still number one. Yeah. Think about the films that came out in 2002. It beat Men in Black 2. It beat uh, the 007 movie that came out that year, Minority Report. It made Hmm. more money than Born Identity, 8 Mile, just all these movies that came out. It's insane that it made this much money, but that's a testament to how great it is. Yeah, and I think one of its strengths, and I, I don't want to step on something you're going to say, but I think one of its strengths is that it's not just a rom-com, it's also a family comedy. And people really relate to those. A lot of people really love those rom-coms that are also family comedies, that there's there are more characters to respond to, and everybody can relate to having a, a funny family, a weird family, right? <laughs> yeah, everybody can. Everybody can. And that's one of the things that I think makes it really endearing. But another element that I think kind of elevates it above other romantic comedies for me is that it feels more real because the characters aren't these models, Mm. you know, that you'd see in, in, you see these Kevin James movies where he's trying to get with Jessica Biel and these (laughs) people that, that don't seem to match up in real life. These are just regular people. And I think that's one of the reasons why I like it so much. That just felt refreshing to see like yeah. normal people going through this stuff. Um, there's a, a really funny line where where her character says, my dad believed in two things, that Greeks should educate non-Greeks about being Greek and every ailment from psoriasis to poison ivy can be cured with Windex. 
Yeah. And <laughs> that rings true because my wife's dad thinks that everything can be cured with vapor rub. So that's amazing. I just love that part. Yeah. <laughs> Um, this also is one of the rare romantic comedies that does not follow the traditional rom-com formula of the second act breakup in most mm -hmm. rom-coms between the second and third act, you have a breakup and that's where like the last Valley comes before your climax. And this doesn't follow that, which I think is really great. So if you're looking for a sweet movie, you're looking for something that's kind of lighthearted, more realistic with two leads that have great chemistry Go watch My Big Fat Greek Wedding. I do not think you'll be disappointed. I can't speak for the sequel, which I have not seen, but the original is it's a really great movie. Yeah, I don't I don't remember if I've seen the sequel. So it may be that I didn't see it or maybe that it wasn't that great. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. And we're going to hopefully cover it soon because we're doing a we're preparing a wedding series right now. So it's on my radar. Yeah. Ah, cool. My number four, I think some people would also question whether it's a romantic comedy, but I'm going to hopefully convince you why it is. Um, it is A Room with a View from 1985. This is not at all what we were led to expect. It was a simpler time with simpler needs. Your mother would never forgive me if I took the view. I don't know why we're arguing, because we don't have it. We have no view. I have a view, so does George. My son George here. You could have... Our rooms, and we'll have yours. We can change. Certain things were acceptable. Up to now, I have never kissed you. No, you haven't. May I now? Certain things were not. You see! There was a time and place for everything. She has accepted me. What joy. Life was perfect because there was order. <laughs> Directed by James Ivory, written by Ruth Prover Jabvala, and it's adapted from the novel by E.M. Forrester, and it stars Helena Bonham Carter, Julian Sands, Maggie Smith, Daniel Day-Lewis, and many more. And so the reason why I chose this movie is period pieces and, you know, classic literature is so important to the romantic comedy genre. Um, of course, you have like your Jane Austen films, but across classic literature, it's been mined for these romantic comedies. And for me... Of all the period pieces, this is the most romantic. And it is, in my opinion, also very funny. I don't know if you've seen it. Have you seen A Room with a View? I have not. I have not. And But I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis has me interested. Yeah, I think people's impression of Merchant Ivory films and period pieces is sometimes that they're quite boring. But I watched this movie when I was a child, like eight, nine, ten. My, they were the movies that were lying around my house and I would watch them and nobody told me to be bored by them. So I wasn't. <laughs> if you look at the actual story of this movie, it's a, it's a classic rom-com plot. So it's a young woman goes on vacation, meets a hot guy who's very different from her boring boyfriend at home. He kisses her. She feels intrigued, but scared. When she goes home, her boyfriend proposes. She accepts only to have her life just kind of upended when the hot guy from her vacation shows up in her neighborhood. I mean, that's a rom-com story. Yeah. It's all dressed up in Edwardian <laughs> England and the and Florence, Italy of that time period, but it's still just your classic rom-com story. In fact, uh, Kevin Kwan, the guy who wrote Crazy Rich Asians and all those books, he actually wrote a modernization of A Room with a View called Sex and Vanity because he saw that potential too, I think. So... It's a it's got a great basic story and then you add to this just insanely beautiful scenery in Florence, Italy 
And in the English countryside, you add to it a cast that is just beyond compare. Okay. Right away, you've got, you know, Helena Bottom Carter and Maggie Smith are interacting through a lot of the movie. Maggie Smith plays her chaperone. And Julian Sands isn't very well known. A lot of people just know him for Warlock, but he's very competent in this movie as well. You've got Denholm Elliott in the cast who plays the main guy's father. You know, he's all, he's Marcus Brody from the Indiana Jones movies. If you're not familiar with him, Judy Dench is in the cast and it's just got all these great ingredients. And, but for, for me, I think the thing that really draws me in though is this is a story of passion overcoming propriety, passion overcoming what's expected of you. For me, that's one of the main themes in rom-coms that I respond to. Um, it's right there in the novel, and then the movie really brings it to life. That's what I want for an adaptation. I want the movie to add something extra to the original source material, and A Room with a View really does that. This sounds like one I have to see. <laughs> I hope so, yeah. The humor in the movie, like, it's there, but it's subtle humor. You know, it's a comedy of manners, and it's coming from satirizing these kind of, like, typical British characters, like these typical Edwardian characters, like you've got an uptight minister, a wacky free thinking father, a bumbling chaperone, a tawdry novelist, you have all these characters, like coming, like bumping into each other. And the laughter is really subtle, like Maggie Smith's performance is amazing. I'm always laughing at her. And oh my god, Daniel Day Lewis is perfection in this movie. He plays the boring fiance. Okay. And he's playing the snobbish, pretentious, like, you wouldn't believe he's the same guy who was in Last of the Mohicans, basically. His <laughs> his movements, his little micro gestures, his facial expression, everything is perfection. And he makes you at once not want the girl to get together with him and also feel sorry for him at the same time. Mm. It's It's just truly spectacular. This movie also has, I think, one of the most iconic romantic scenes, romantic set pieces in any romantic movie ever. There's a scene in a field with a kiss in Florence, Italy, that if you see the movie, you'll know which one I'm talking about. Set to opera music by Kiri Takanawa. If I had to choose the most romantic scene ever filmed, that would be it. So it's it's all there. And it's funny, too. There's a there's a scene with guys running around naked in a pond and the proper people like bump into them. There's It's a lot of fun. That's a, a room with a view from 1985. I can't add much to this one because I haven't seen it. But like I said... Daniel Day-Lewis has me interested, and from your description alone, definitely sounds like one I should uh, I should watch with my wife. I hope so. I, I hope you'll like it. <laughs> I will let you know after I after I watch it. Thanks. Well, one of the things I like about this show is how stark the um, the difference between picks can be, <laughs> because <laughs> mine is about to take us to a whole different place. Uh, we went from your classic romantic comedy with prestige actors. And at my number three, we're going to something about Mary. The critics are crazy about Mary. My Mary? I love her, man! MTV Radio calls it the funniest movie of the decade. <laughs> the Animal House of the 90s. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Rolling Stone calls it the biggest and boldest laughs of the summer. Sensational, sicko fun. How's everything? Fine. You know, I'm drunk like bull. There's something about Mary. Ready to Special sneak preview tomorrow. Check newspapers. There's just something about Mary. This one is written and directed by the Farrelly brothers, who had a really great run in the mid-90s, mid to late 90s. This one, of course, stars Cameron Diaz as Mary 
Ben Stiller and Matt Dillon are the people vying for her affection. For those who have not seen something, there's something about Mary. It's about this guy named Ted, played by Ben Stiller. And prom night for Ted went about as bad as possible. And then 13 years later, he finally gets another chance with his old prom date, only to run up against other suitors, including the sleazy detective he hired to find her. This is, for my money, the funniest one on my list. It's just such a goofy movie. And it has these really gross-out moments that go to some pretty wild extremes. The Farrelly's really just kind of knew how to push a joke to its limits. And I think that that's on full display here. Of course, I'm talking about both the scenes featuring Frank and Beans and um, Mary's hair gel that she gets in one scene. Yeah. Uh, You know, I've seen a lot of negative reviews about this film that harp on Mary being this kind of idealized woman for most men like she's beautiful funny patient intelligent she's a surgeon but she still likes sports and goes and eats hot dogs and all the men around her are just such dogs that when she gets with ben stiller it feels like this cheap win but i also (laughs) think that that's the point of this movie the point is that mary is like this vision of the she's like this hallucination of the one that got away for people and it's not supposed to be realistic. It's it's more like a fantasy film filled with dimwits that are portraying what they think Mary is onto her. And Matt Dillon's Pat Healy character is the perfect example of this. And he's, by the way, he's so perfectly cast as a scumbag private investigator. And he was he was hired by uh, by Ted to find Mary and then falls in love with what his interpretation of her is because he's been watching her, her and He's trying to piece together what he thinks she's like and then conform himself to that. Uh, mm. But uh, honestly, I'm less impressed with the romantic part of this anyway. And uh, this is this is more calm than Rom for me because this movie is hilarious. Everybody's doing great comedic work. And um, like I said, the, the Farrelly's just knew how to write a joke. It's also got a fantastic closing where everybody's doing this sing-along, dance-along to to a song that is just great. It's a great way to end this movie. But yeah, I I think it's hilarious. I still laugh today. Again, this is one of those movies that if you watch it now for the first time, it might be a little off-putting. And it's definitely a film they wouldn't be able to make again today. But I just got, I have a big soft spot in my heart for there's something about Mary. Yeah, like I haven't seen it since it came out like a long time ago. I remember like finding it funny at the time. So like, I'm definitely not hating on the movie at all. I just it just never occurred to me to rewatch it, I guess. But I have such respect, especially for Ben Stiller's comedic work throughout his entire career. So yeah, I I definitely remember liking his character. I just I think for me, the reason it wasn't a rewatch was because it is like you said, it's more calm than Rom. And I do tend to watch ones that lean a little more on the ROM, I would say. But yeah, no, I think it was a big hit when it came out. I think it was really influential in inspiring other similar rom-coms that were a little edgier or a little or little maybe not edgy, but like a little more towards the gross out humor or because there were a whole bunch of those and there still are being made today. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely think this was influential in that way. And it directly will lead into my number two with that kind of comedy. Interesting. All right. So number three for you. So my number three is a teen film. And it's actually, I was listening to one of your episodes where you talked about this film. 
and it is 10 Things I Hate About You from 1999. I hate the way you talk to me and the way you cut your hair. I hate the way you drive my car. I hate it when you stare. I hate your big dumb combat boots and the way you read my mind. I hate you so much it makes me sick. It even makes me rhyme. I hate it. I hate the way you're always right. I hate it when you lie. I hate it when you make me laugh. Even worse when you make me cry. I hate it when you're not around and the fact that you didn't call. But mostly I hate the way I don't hate you. Not even close. Not even a little bit. Not even at all. I'm so glad you put this on there. Yeah. Yeah. It's directed by Gil Younger, written by Karen McCullough and Kristen Smith and based on the Taming of the Shrew by Shakespeare. And it stars Julia Stiles and Heath Ledger. And the funny thing about this movie is before I podcasted on it, I don't think it would have been on my radar for the list. But when you podcast about a movie, um, at least when I podcast about a movie, I watch it multiple times. I look at it closely. And when I realized was when we got to the podcasting part, I had nothing but enthusiasm for this film. And I, I could watch it the next day. Some movies I podcast about, I just don't want to see them for another five years, right? 10 Things I Hate About You, I'm like, I could really go for that movie again. <laughs> and I think it's just such a seamless movie. It just leads you from scene to scene and everything is well written, well acted. It's fun. It's fun to look at. Um, and I think it really hits a sweet spot for the teen rom-com. And I think the teen rom-com is, is an important subgenre of the rom-com. So that's, it was also important for me to include one, but it would have been included anyway, because it has like the highest rewatchability factor. Oh, yeah. But I really feel like it hits a sweet spot because some of the 80s teen rom-coms, they were a little bit like almost unrealistic and kids would be like a little bit like too into like sex or criminal activity and, and sure. no parental presence like at all. And then you get today's teen rom-coms, which seem weird to me too, because it seems much more a product of the helicopter parenting age where teens aren't really talking about sex or they haven't had any experience. And the language is often so cleaned up that I feel like are, are teenagers like this today? Are they not, you know, making fun of each other? Are they not saying inappropriate things anymore? <laughs> so I feel like 10 things I hate about you hits this really nice sweet spot in 1999. And, and it, it's just brings like the teenagers seem real to me, Kat and Patrick, the lead characters, they seem like real teenagers like they, they actually make out a little bit in the movie. You know that Kat has had like a sexual past. It's alluded to at one point, but they also, they interact with adults in their life. They interact with their parents. And I, I like that. I like that balance, that authenticity. Um, one of the other strengths of this movie, there's a great bromance between Joseph Gordon-Levitt and um, David Krumholtz, those two actors. Yeah. Every time those guys are on screen and when Heath Ledger joins them, it's just hilarious. Their comic acting is great. David Krumholtz, I think, is a really underrated comic actor. And you've also got like supporting work in this movie from Allison Janney. So there's mm. a lot of just, mm -hmm. yeah, great performances going on in this. It's got a great late 90s vibe with the music and the fashion and being set in Seattle. Like the locations they got for this movie are amazing. The high school in Tacoma that they use that looks like a castle. It's perfection. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, and one more thing. I, I'm sorry. I just want to say one more thing. I love that like they do a literary modernization where they're not like being so faithful to the source material that it seems stupid. Okay. Like they take what works from the Taming of the Shrew and they discard the rest. They yeah. take like the basic plot of like, 
here is this kind of like difficult girl that you need to seduce for this strange reason. And they keep that, but they're not trying to add weird side characters or the, the parts of the Shakespeare play that aren't that funny. They're, they're just, they're making it better. They're making it modern. And I like the way they sort of like bring in a little bit of Shakespearean dialogue in a way that makes it seem like it's just teenage slang. You know, it's, it's so cool. Obviously, I love this movie, too. You've heard me talk about it. Listeners, you you know, I don't remember what episode it was on, but go back and listen to them all. You'll hear me gush about this. Um, Great soundtrack. And unlike a lot of romantic comedies, there are two really great relationships in this movie, like two romantic relationships growing in this movie. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt is just so damn cute in in this movie. (laughs) He's like such a little kid. And he just, uh, I adore him in this movie as this kind of, shy nerd who's trying to get his dream girl and in order to get his dream girl he has to get her sister with um into a relationship it's just it's it's so good i'm glad you brought this up because like i mentioned at the top i left off those high school romance movies and there are two others that i i really love that i'll save for my honorable mentions if they don't make your list but this was one of them I hinted at my number two when I talked about there's something about Mary, because I do think that this writer was inspired at least somewhat by that movie. And it's from, geez, 2004, I think 2005, 40-year-old virgin. Andy Stitzer has a secret. <laughs> You're a virgin! And now that it's out. We can help you out. He has no idea what he's in for. You gotta highlight your attributes. You just wax that whole Teen Wolf thing off. No! You look like a man o' lantern. This summer, if there's a first time for everything, I'm Trish. Candy. There's a first time for everyone. <laughs> Do you have protection? I don't like guns. <gasps> the 40 year old virgin, rated R, starts August 19th. This is uh, directed by Judd Apatow, written by Steve Carell and Judd Apatow, and stars Steve Carell, Catherine Keener, Paul Rudd, Seth Rogen, Leslie Mann, all those other Judd Apatow mainstays. I think most people by now have probably seen a 40-year-old virgin, but if you haven't, it's um, it's really Steve Carell's breakout hit as a lead. And he plays Andy Stitzer, a guy who has a nice life. He has a nice apartment, a good job. He works at an electronics store called Smart Tech, but at age 40, there's something Andy hasn't done, and it's really bothering his sex-obsessed male co-workers. Andy is still a virgin. So determined to get him laid, the guys make it their mission to de-virginize him, and it all seems hopeless until Andy meets a small business owner named Trish. Like uh, like the movie I talked about before, this one manages to be really sweet, but also really gross at the same time. But unlike There's Something About Mary, you'll actually like the protagonist here. Andy is a really likable guy. He's just kind of wholesome. He's this... Um, innocent lump of 40 year old clay that his coworkers are who, who shouldn't be molding anybody are trying to get laid. It's got really, really memorable scenes, but the highlight for me has to be a scene in which they take Andy to go get waxed because he's got a very hairy (laughs) chest and it was all done in real time with real hair, with real wax. So the, um, like the reactions are all genuine, which just seems amazing. And there are so many little cameos, so many people in here that in 2005, you might not have known them, but now it's like, oh, shit, that's Jonah Hill as a five second cameo. That's Kevin Hart in a one minute cameo. 
By the way, Kevin Hart's best performance because he is best in small doses for me. (laughs) (laughs) The relationship here, though, takes center stage. And Andy and Trish, is it's a really just kind of nice relationship. It feels genuine. And what what gives it another level, I think, is the contrast of the gross out humor that's going on around them and the banter between people like like um, Seth Rogen and Paul Rudd that really amplifies the quiet moments that Carell and Keener have. Now, it's yeah. it's like a lot of Apatow movies. It's a little long and has the typical editing problems. Like you could probably take a couple of scenes and just toss them in a blender and throw them back in mixed up order and it probably wouldn't even matter. But it's still a really fun, fantastic movie for me with a cast that I just love. I worked on the sales floor of a Best Buy for a very long time. So just the environment alone of this movie makes me like it brings back a lot of memories for me. And people really acted this way, both customers and employees (laughs) alike. So, yeah, 40 year old virgin special place in my heart, but uh, also very funny. Yeah, that's fantastic. Like, I agree with, I think, pretty much everything you said about it. It's my favorite Apatow film, and I've seen it numerous mm-hmm. times. I love Steve Carell. I'm a big Office fan. So, yes. you know, like I like his work in pretty much everything. And, yeah, just such a great cast of actors present for this movie. Isn't, like, Jane's sister from, like, Thor in the Marvel Universe? Is it her sister or her friend? I don't know. She's Kat Dennings. Is that her name? Isn't Kat yeah. Dennings in it as well? Like, as she the daughter? Yeah, like there's so many people in this. <laughs> yeah, he goes to like a sex class with her, and uh, oh no, it's it's more, it's like a safe sex thing. And yeah, uh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, yeah, it's just so funny. <laughs> yeah, I think this is also one of my favorites of the kind of like rom coms that have like more of that kind of maybe not a gross out element, but more of like a kind of humor that's maybe aimed at the male audience a little more. I think it's my favorite of that genre too. I think it's a really good blend of the sweetness of the romance and the hilarious comedy at the same time. Yeah. And it, and as an office fan, you'll get a kick out of seeing uh, Carol, Steve Carell's real life <laughs> wife in there as well as the counselor in that scene I was talking about. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Number two for you. My number one and my number two were just like such easy picks for me. And my number two choice is Moonstruck, which is actually the very first movie we podcasted on for our podcast, because all three of my original co-hosts and I, we just love that movie. Um, It was from 1987. Moonstruck is one of the year's best films and a wonderful time at the movies. Raves Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. Snap out of it. Joel Siegel of ABC TV says it's perfect. What a sweet, wonderful film. Now you know. Newsweek magazine adds, Moonstruck is enchanting. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Cher, Nicolas Cage, Moonstruck. Starts Friday at a famous player's theater near you. Check listings. Directed by Norman Jewison, written by John Patrick Shanley, the only guy writer on my list, I guess, starring Cher, Nicolas Cage, and Olympia Dukakis. And it's also got Dan Aiello, Vincent Gardenia, Julie Bavasso, all the actors in there are so good. So one of the reasons I love this movie, not just because it has an amazing cast and a great script, is because it's a movie where an older woman is the protagonist. I mean, older isn't she's supposed to be in her like late 30s, but let's face it, a lot of rom-coms don't have women in their late 30s. And she's featured, and then her mother also has a complex story and life that is also featured, Olympia Dukakis's character. 
And it's not about that they're old either. A lot of movies with an older woman, it's all about, oh, you're so old. Why are you dating this young guy? Or, oh, you're so old. Can you really date again? I don't like that kind of rom-com as much. I like this movie because it acknowledges that as we get older, we still feel love. We still feel romance. We still have relationship problems. Like Cher has a story in this uh, movie like with Nicolas Cage, and that's the main story. But there are also stories going on with the older couples in the movie. Um, one of the couples is dealing with one of them having an affair. The other couple's kind of rekindling their romantic spirit. And I, and I, it's so beautifully written, weaves these characters together seamlessly. John Patrick Shanley, like he's written some weird stuff like Wild Mountain Time. I don't recommend, but he's also written some <laughs> great, he's also written just some great stuff. And he has a real sense of like writing dialogue in a very authentic way and writing about families in a really authentic way. So it's not just a rom-com, it's also a family comedy as well. I think a lot of people approach Moonstruck these days as a Nicolas Cage film too. Like my husband right. and I went to yeah, my husband and I went to see an outdoor screening of it in Baltimore, Maryland a few years ago, and there were some people who came in to watch it, and it was clear from the way they were reacting to the movie that they were there to like ironically watch a Nicolas Cage movie, right? Cuz they at first they were just laughing every time Nicolas Cage came on and like whispering to each other. But as the movie went on, they were drawn in by the magic of the movie. They were drawn in by the romance. They were drawn in by the dialogue and the and the kind of ironic laughter stopped. You know, this yeah. movie is bre this movie's breathtaking. Um, it uses opera so well to express passion. The actors express passion so well. Cher is one of the only actors I think that can like rein in whatever Nicolas Cage is bringing. You know, <laughs> he does not steal a scene from her. She holds her presence with him very well. And they have such great chemistry in this movie. I didn't even tell the plot yet. I mean, I guess the plot is, I'm not going to, it's not that important, but the basic plot again is whether you choose passion or propriety. Uh, Cher is engaged to the Nicolas Cage character's brother in this movie. And they're kind of, you know, they're not really in love, but it's like a practical decision. She meets the brother and all of a sudden they're both swept away. And it's kind of a decision. Are you going to go with the practical choice that makes sense? Or are you going to go with your heart, even though it makes no sense at all? Because Nicolas Cage's character in this movie is also kind of intense. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and if you really thought about it, maybe doesn't have everything together. But it, it's so it's so wonderful to me. Like passion has always been important in my life. It's always been important to acknowledge your gut. There's a speech in this movie that's one of my favorite speeches in any romantic comedy or any movie, really. And Nicolas Cage gives it. It's He says, love don't make things nice. It ruins everything. It breaks your heart. It makes things a mess. We aren't here to make things perfect. The stars are perfect. Not us. Not us. We are here to ruin ourselves and to break our hearts and to love the wrong people and die. <laughs> okay, that's a, that's a really intense speech, but Nicolas Cage delivers it much better than I do. And the moment that it's delivered, I, I mean, how can you not be swept away by it? And I agree with that philosophy that love isn't always going to make things nice. Sometimes you have to take a chance. Sometimes you have to make a mess to be with the person that you're really supposed to be with. Anyway, that's what I felt about it. My co-host didn't always agree with that assessment, but they also loved this movie. The storybooks are bullshit. <laughs> yeah, uh... that's the next line. That's right. <laughs> it's a great great look at 1980s New York, too. And you mentioned Nicolas Cage and, and Cher having amazing performances. Of course they do. And they overshadow kind of an, another amazing performance by Dana Aiello, who just is fantastic in this. 
Uh, yeah, what, nothing bad to say about Moonstruck. It's a really great movie. Cool, cool. <laughs> number one here for me. Number one was tough because there's two that I think could have been at number one, but they're ex- they're, they're kind of similar. And so I only I, I could only choose one. One went into my honorable mentions because I didn't want to have the similarities here. And uh, this is one that you haven't covered yet on your show, and I hope you do at some point. Uh, This is written and directed by Richard Curtis, who is kind of one of like the romantic comedy kings, I would say. He has written and directed Notting Hill and Love Actually, but I think his best is About Time. My name is Tim, and this is the year that would change my life forever. Happy New Year! I just didn't know it yet. Tim, my dear son, this is going to sound strange, but there's this family secret that the men in the family can travel in time. This is such a weird joke. It's not a joke. If it's true, which it isn't. Although it is. But if it was, which it's not. Which it is. How would I actually... You go into a dark place, clench your fists, think of the moment you're going to, and you'll find yourself there. complicated years. It's going to be a complicated life. For me, it was always going to be all about love. I'm Tim. I'm Mary. It's my mother's name. I remind you of your mother. Obviously, I should have thought this through more. Could you give me one second? I love this movie. About Time is so good. This stars Dom Nall Gleeson and Rachel McAdams as our relationship here. The plot is that the night after a New Year's Eve party, Tim, who's played by Domhnall Gleeson, he comes home. He's disappointed. He's talking to his dad about it. And his dad tells him that the men in their family have always had the ability to travel through time. And it sounds like the the weirdest, most bizarre setup because he just kind of says it. And Tim in the movie is like, all right, uh, you, you know, are you drunk? Like, what's what's going on here? And it turns out that he's telling the truth. Now, they can't change history, but they can change what happens and has happened in his own life. We've, you know, we've all had these moments that we wish we could take back and do over. And he's starting to do those things. But soon he realizes that as he goes back, he's changing other things. And of course, the the moral of the story overall is that sometimes you just have to live life and make mistakes. But it is just the most charming movie the fanta- the leads are so good in this. Rachel McAdams, I I love. She's a fantastic actress, and yeah. um, Domhnall Gleeson is great alongside of her. Bill Nighy plays the father, and he is great as always. And God, there's a scene in this that I will only refer to as the last walk. That I will just like cry during that scene every single time. It's it's really at, at its heart. It's got the romantic element to it but like some others on our lists it has the family element to it as well and it's just a movie about how important the time you spend with your loved ones is and it will make you laugh it will definitely make you cry there are some heartbreaking moments in this and you you won't be able to escape those thoughts about the choices you'd make if you had the same gift when you're done watching this. It's also got a great soundtrack, a great indie soundtrack. But Hmm. yeah, About Time is just such a fantastic movie. I wish more people have seen it, especially because I know there's been some backlash um, 
nowadays about Love Actually, which I also really, really love. Um, but I didn't want to put two Richard Curtis movies on this list. Love yeah. Actually could also be at my number one. I really love that movie. But About Time, I think, is so much better. And it's it's so much sweeter than yeah. a- any of these other movies. I I love it so much. I, I remember seeing About Time. Like I, That is another one that I have not rewatched yet. And I think it's probably, it just didn't push my particular buttons. You know, like I'm saying with rom-coms, they, they, they're so personal, I think, in, in terms of people's choice. And, but I th- do think it's a quality movie. I really admire Rachel McAdams as well. She's been great across a variety of movies. Her work in The Vow is really good too, which a lot of people also haven't seen. Um, my favorite Richard Curtis associate, like he didn't direct it, but my favorite is Four Weddings and a Funeral is, is one of my, it's not, it's not my number one, obviously, but it'd probably be an honorable mention. But yeah, I, I think there's a lot of heft to the story and we definitely will cover it at some point. I have my eye on doing like a time travel or time bending series. We, we do a lot of series on the podcast, so I'm kind of waiting for it to like fit into that series place. You know what I mean? Yeah, this, and this also is a movie I think actually kind of like Moonstruck that as you have, as you get more life experience and as you get older, I think it will resonate even more. So if you haven't seen it since it came out or, you know, Moonstruck, if it's been a long time since you've seen Moonstruck for that, for that matter, like go back and watch them after you have more life experience. And I think you'll get more out of them as you watch it later in life. Hmm. Maybe I will check it out again. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's because it starts out with those small moments. You know, the first time he meets Rachel McAdams, he screws up. So he goes back five minutes and does it again. But then it starts becoming bigger choices. And uh, yeah, it's just it's so good. Yeah, well, that's great. Yeah, I'm, I definitely you've inspired me to want to see it again. So and and you're inspiring me to want to hurry up so I can get to that time travel series as well. <laughs> well, there you go. Okay, grand finale time for you. Number one on your top five romantic comedies. Jen Howell, what do you got? All right, so my number one choice is also one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time. It's also my husband's favorite romantic comedy. It's also one of his, I think, top 10 favorite movies of all time. And by a lot of people, it's considered the gold standard of the genre. But recently I found out there's this thing on Twitter called Rom-Com Bracket, where people, you know, vote on the best rom-coms, it never makes it past the second round. And I don't know if it huh. it's just, does, maybe it doesn't resonate with younger people. Maybe some people haven't seen it yet. For whatever reason, even though it's often still held up as the gold standard, um, it's it just doesn't, res- some people just don't respond to it. But if you haven't guessed what it is already, it is 1989's When Harry Met Sally. No, I don't like to eat between meals. They were best friends. Are you comfortable? Until they fell in love. Sure. Yes! 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 I'll have what she's having. When Harry Met Sally. Next. It's directed by Rob Reiner, written by Nora Ephron, stars Billy Crystal, Meg Ryan, Carrie Fisher, and Bruno Kirby. And really those four carry pretty much the entire movie. There are other actors, but they're doing all the heavy lifting. And for me, there's so many reasons I love this movie, but I think the main reason I love this movie is I think the female and the male perspective are in perfect balance and the romance and the comedy are also in perfect balance. I've just never watched a rom-com before where I felt like everything is balanced so well, it doesn't skew one way or the other too much. And everybody's a fully developed character as well. And I laugh out loud at parts of this movie. And I also just, my heart, you know, still feels something 
uh, when these characters are getting together or when they're, you know, separated. And the dialogue in this movie is also just fantastic. And it's interesting, the script was sort of a collaboration. Nora Ephron did do the bulk of the writing, but then she was interviewing Rob Reiner about the male experience and like taking notes and incorporating that into her script. And Billy Crystal contributed arguably two of the best lines in the entire movie, kind of in an improv fashion. So this was like people working together to create something that was bigger than any of their individual visions. And I think it really shows. The story just doesn't, to me, doesn't explain why it's so great, but it's basically a friends to lovers story. But they also don't really even start as friends, these characters. They start out a little bit antagonistic. And I like having a little of that energy in a romantic comedy, too. And then every scene is almost its own set piece. Like you could almost do this as a theater piece and still have people entertained because the dialogue is so sharp. It's so good. There's all these observations about different aspects of relationships from the famous like faking an orgasm scene to the experience of being broken up with by surprise to just like talking about like how can men and women navigate friendships? Can they be friends? Will romance interfere? Which is like the sort of core you know, question of the movie. Um, Interestingly, originally this movie was going to have a downbeat ending, but then Rob Reiner fell in love while he was making the movie and they (laughs) scrapped that and it became the rom-com that it is. And I'm so grateful because I don't think people would remember the one with a downbeat ending. And now I just want to address one thing, which is like, I listened to your ripoffs episode and somebody called it like a a ripoff of Woody Allen. And I've seen that. I've seen people say that about when Harry met Sally, like I've seen that in other places, but to me, Woody Allen has never made a film and I've seen so many of his films. He's never made a film to me where I felt like the woman's perspective was really strong. He's had some great actresses work in his films. You know, he's had some interesting stories but I can feel that a woman was involved in writing this movie. I, the things that the characters say are so authentic to my experience at times. And the w- women's friendship, especially the friendship between um, Sally and I can't remember the character, but Carrie Fisher in this yeah. movie is so great. It's so authentic. And to me, that's something that just Woody Allen movies are missing. I mean, like, yes, they're both set in New York. They both have kind of like a Jewish perspective and a comedic perspective, but like, you know, like there's allowed to be more movies like that set in New York without it being a ripoff, in my opinion. I don't know. I just I felt like I had to put in the defense of When Harry Met Sally right there. <laughs> um, yeah. And I don't know. I'm not sure if there's anything else I really want to say other than the dialogue in this. My husband and I quote it all the time. Like there are lines in here that are just so fabulous. Um, one of my favorite lines Carrie Fisher delivers. She says, Everybody thinks they have good taste and a sense of humor, but they couldn't all possibly have good taste. Like, I love that line. (laughs) I use it in so many situations. That whole scene that that takes place in with a wagon wheel coffee table, if you've seen the movie, that's my one of my favorite scenes in cinema. Uh, It's just so sharp, sharp, sharply written. I feel like, sorry, I feel nervous because I feel like this pressure to defend this film that I love so much. It's such a personal film to me. Um, it feels like an old friend when I watch it. You know, it's one of those that I've seen, again, maybe a hundred times for all I know, because I started watching it when I was a kid with my parents. And I think it's really formed a lot of my impressions about relationships and love and the problems that might come up. Even though my life, I don't think it's really resembled either Harry or Sally that much, but like, I do think those are both very authentic characters, nonetheless. I was going to say that the characters in here really do feel authentic. And I think that's why this movie is so special. It's odd to me that it doesn't make it further in those rom-com brackets because it really is like 
when you think of romantic comedies, it's one of the classic romantic comedies. And I would have been shocked if it didn't make our list. Um, <laughs> so, and this was made by Rob Reiner in his, he had this incredible directorial run where he had, this is Spinal Tap, Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, and then When Harry mm -hmm. Met Sally, and then Misery and A Few Good Men. Like, what a run that was. Yeah, for sure. And the funny thing is, I love, like, I like Nora Ephron's other movies. I like them, but I don't love them. Um, I love the collaboration here. I just, I just, I, I feel like that was what made this movie so strong, is everybody coming together. And yeah, some people are big sleepless in Seattle people. It doesn't get me as much. And I think it's because Tom Hanks seems like too much of an ideal male character. I don't mind my male romantic characters a little bit rough edged, you know, a little, yeah. you know, because I feel like that's life for me. Sure. Yeah. Well, great pick. Great list. Any um, honorable mentions that you wanted to, to bring up that narrowly missed your list? Oh my gosh. Well, I'm going to try to keep this list short because I, I tend to love movies more than I hate them, but <laughs> yeah. I want to, my list was a little older, so I definitely want to shout out some newer movies that I really enjoy. I like Always Be My Maybe so much that's on Netflix. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Always Be My Maybe, which was written by Randall Park and Ali Wong and another writer. But I'm just going to highlight those two right now because they also star in it. It's such a good um, rom-com. It does suffer from some of the Netflix stuff where the production values aren't always great. And some of the humor mm -hmm. is very referential to the current moment. There is a cameo in that movie that you will not want to miss, like no matter if you're a rom-com fan or not. Um, another newer one that's also on Netflix, Alex Strangelove, is a really nice teen rom-com about a young man realizing that he is gay. And it's really, but it's really funny. I like it a lot better than like the other teen rom-com people might be familiar with Love's Simon. I think Alex Strangelove, again, has that authenticity of teenagers behaving realistically and the great chemistry in there. I also think The Big Sick is going to be a modern classic. You know, I think yeah. people are going to come back to that. And I, I really also love horror rom-com and the Happy Death Day series. I love those movies. Those are so great. Um, also, Little Monsters is kind of an underseen gem that's only on Hulu. It's got Lupita Nyong'o in it. She is great. She It's a zombie rom-com. Shaun of the Dead is, of course, great, too. But Little Monsters, I, I think even if you've seen Shaun of the Dead, it's still worth checking that one out. And yeah, there's so many more. The Wedding Singer almost made my list. Um, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Romancing the Stone, also written by a woman, Diane Thomas. Fantastic 80s rom-com. I could go on for years, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll stop now. Uh, no, that's okay. There are a couple that you mentioned that would have been on my honorable mentions. The Big Sick was very close to making my list. I did mention that I excluded a couple of other high school movies. One that you've covered, one that you haven't. The one that you covered was Clueless, which I think is a great romantic comedy for the, the high school crowd. And then She's All That, which I have a real soft spot for Rachel Lee Cook when I was uh, <laughs> 18 in 1999. She was like my vision of perfection. Um, wow, I also yeah, love yeah. this movie. I, I you know, I was going to bring it up, but I've talked about it so much on this show and I've even been on other shows talking about it. The Paul Rudd, Amy Poehler romantic comedy. They came together. Yeah, yeah. So, the, so funny. The rom-com satire genre, which is just sort of a new, which they might have started, actually. I think they were the first ones. Was it Showalter directed it or did he just write it? I can't remember. That one was directed by David Wayne, but written okay. by Showalter yeah. and David Wayne. Yeah. Yeah. We covered Wet Hot American Summer and yeah, <laughs> their work another, is hilarious. Oh, another great one. Yeah. 
A couple of other ones. Palm Springs, the newer Andy Samberg movie, is really good, but I didn't think it was necessarily funny enough to make my list. And then uh, my wife wanted me to mention 50 First Dates, which uh, I'm not a huge fan of, but she loves. So that would be her number one. That's interesting. I'm not either a huge fan of that, but I love The Wedding Singer. And I do think Drew Barrymore and um, Adam Sandler, they have great chemistry. And apparently they have a great working relationship too. Like they've spoken about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jen, great show. Everybody needs to go listen to every rom-com. You will find links in the show notes. What else? Where else can people find more of your work? Where can they follow you on Twitter? Where can they see you on Instagram? All that good stuff. So yeah, you'll probably have this in the show notes, but we have a website, everyromcom.com. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, Every Romcom Podcast and Blog. I've only written three blog entries, but they're pretty good. <laughs> and that's kind of, that title's kind of a uh, yeah remnant of that. Uh, Instagram, at Every Romcom, and Twitter, at Every Romcom Pod. So yeah, those are our places to find us. And we really welcome feedback, suggestions, um, interaction of all kinds. I don't have a ton of time to promote the show because I'm so busy researching it all the time. But I do try to interact with people who get in touch with us for sure. And our next series that we're having coming up, we just finished a Gen X series with a bunch of like 80s and 90s rom-coms and some of them with a grunge touch. We're about to head into our wedding series. So there's so many wedding rom-coms. We're going to do some favorites and maybe some unexpected ones too. And um, mm. I was also, I also wanted to put in that it's, I work at a library and I often see people forget that the library exists. And there are so many, you know, DVDs that you can rent there and Blu-rays that you can rent there. And I really encourage you to do that because libraries will get rid of media that is not checked out eventually. They need to make room for newer things. So if there's like an older movie you want to watch, like I really encourage you to try to get it from your library first to make sure it's in circulation so other people can see it. So that's my public service announcement for the day. And a good one. I mean, as you for those physical media collectors out there, as you upgrade to Blu-rays, what are you going to do with those old DVDs? They're not going to net you more than 50 cents on eBay. Why? Why deal with the hassle? Just go donate them to your library so other people can see those cool films that uh, you don't necessarily need anymore. I've heard from a few listeners lately that we want a recap of the picks at the end of the show. So here you go, running down both of our lists. Jen Howell. At number five, she had Dirty Dancing. At number four, she had A Room with a View. At number three, Ten Things I Hate About You. At number two, she had Moonstruck. And her number one was When Harry Met Sally. And on my list, I had Chasing Amy at number five. Number four was My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Number three, There's Something About Mary. Number two, The 40-Year-Old Virgin. And my number one romantic comedy was About Time. So what did we miss? Do you have a favorite romantic comedy that was not mentioned? Let me and Jen know on social media, at Force5Pod on Twitter, at Force5Podcast on Instagram. And your comment might just make it to the next show. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your pods. It really helps me out. And tell your friends about the show so they can become listeners with us. Intro and outro bumpers were produced by Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some amazing romantic comedies. (laughs) 